people think that they're being nice when they say, oh, Dr. Jana, you know, I really loved their presentation. They're so articulate. Of course, that's a nice thing to say, articulate. What a kind word. Well, guess what? Articulate to a black person is indicative of the fact that you did not expect that black person to speak the way that they speak. You would never describe a white male CEO, professional public speaker as articulate when he walked off the stage. Plug into the minds of the world's cutting edge innovators, visionaries, and thought leaders, rewriting the rules of high performance at work. It's your time to make an impact. I am your host, Jason Campbell, and this is Superhumans at Work, a Valley podcast. Did you know that you can bring ideas from Mind Valley into your business? If you go to mindvalley.com forward slash superhumans, you can discover Mind Valley's business offerings so you can bring personal and professional growth to the entire company. If you are the owner of a company, you know that if you invest in your employees' engagement, happiness, and learning, it'll help the bottom line and impact the business positively. And if you wish your company was bringing these kinds of products from Mind Valley Quests, Mind Valley Mentoring, and all the learnings to be a complete high-performance individual in every area of your life, then you definitely want to go to mindvalley.com forward slash superhumans to see how we can get started with working with you. Hi, everybody. This is Jason Mark Campbell, and welcome back to Superhumans at Work. And the guest that I have today is the CEO and founder of the TMI Consulting Group. Tiffany Jana is a social entrepreneur. She is a speaker and an author, writing several books such as Overcoming Bias, The B Corp Handbook, Erasing Institutional Bias, and The Subtle Acts of Exclusion, How to Understand, Identify, and Stop microaggressions. We're going to be focusing on the topics of a bit of all of our books with a focus on the latest one to understand what are microaggressions. Do they happen in your workplace? Do they happen around you in your own life? And where does it come up? Is it through racial differences, gender differences, age differences, cultural or ethnical differences? This is really where we want to go and ask these questions, get into these conversations so that we can all level up in our way of being aware of these and stopping them when they come up. And so Tiffany, Jana, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Now, Dr. Jana, you've been a top 100 speaker, you know, in 2008 by Inc. Magazine. You've been around and speaking so much about these topics that, you know, today more than ever are so relevant. And so I wanted to give you the space to kind of share a bit of your background. Like how did you find yourself being in this position where you're being an advocate for all these important topics and going out to speak to the world on making a change? So I like to say that I'm doing actually what most people on the planet do, which is following in the footsteps of their parents. You know, even though we're not as prone to do that in my part of the world, but that is how I came to it. My mother is a pioneer in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space. She came up post-civil rights movement And she was one of the early practitioners who was standing up offices of multicultural affairs and doing work with large governmental institutions. And I was following around behind her when I was in high school, watching her deploy surveys and make workplaces and institutions more diverse, more inclusive. And then I, in my later years growing up and through college, I found out that I actually do come from a long line of people who have been justice workers all the way from the days of enslavement until now. So we have been working towards certainly black liberation, but the liberation of all peoples, it runs in my blood. Oh my God, that's amazing. So then you've been following in these footsteps and I think your voice is definitely 
extremely relevant to be heard today because we've seen the events that happened with George Floyd. And if I could use swear language on expressing how messed up that is, it is something that should never happen. And in the event of it's happening, there's been a lot of people turning into, okay, what do we do now? This is not a singular event. This has been a repetitive event. And in the workplaces, we're talking here about microaggressions. And so there's a lot of companies. What shifts are you seeing since this has happened that companies, are they taking bolder steps? And is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? What's happening right now? Well, it's really good to hear you say that this is not a singular event, because if you're a person of color, you know, if you're a black person in particular, the George Floyd death was the George Floyd lynching, I apologize, was horrible, but not surprising. This was not outside of the context of normal, sadly, for black people in America. The interesting thing is it's the COVID crisis. The COVID pandemic had us all collectively traumatized, locked in our houses, staring at screens. And I think that there was a shift from simply learning about racism or hearing about it or understanding it academically, cerebrally, towards actually feeling it, towards witnessing a lynching and already being in a place of profound pain and confusion and sadness and disillusionment from the crisis. So humanity was collectively able to experience a level of empathy that wasn't really present before. So it's a remarkable moment for people to be waking up. And what's happening with organizations is, I mean, after George Floyd's murder, the organizations were scrambling to get a Black Lives Matter support statement out. And some of it was performative and some of it was authentic. But the kind of consensus, the social consensus was that if your organization did not put out a Black Lives Matter support statement, then you might be a racist organization. When in fact, most organizations are built on the delusion of white supremacy. They are built on systems and structures that support racism, sexism, the patriarchy, all kinds of things that are problematic. The shift that has taken place is that I would have put before COVID, before George Floyd's murder, I would have placed organizations on a spectrum from, and like their wokeness spectrum would have been from diversity and inclusion statement to having a chief diversity officer was about where we were. Post George Floyd's murder, it was having a Black Lives Matter statement to reparations, right? There are a lot of organizations that just made a statement denouncing white supremacy and supporting Black Lives Matter and giving these donations and things, all the way to organizations that are deeply examining their role in supporting the systems and structures of white supremacy and trying to figure out how they can meaningfully give back to the communities that they've either directly harmed or the communities that they serve or that are in their area. And, you know, not necessarily individual reparations, but certainly community level, making sure that if an organization, an institution is doing phenomenally well financially and full of resources, that so is the community around them. This is incredible to see as a shift. I mean, it includes so many more stakeholders that should be included in the creation of wealth through enterprise. And I think this is something that should be there by default. And so as we're listening to this as individuals, we've went aside from here microaggressions, but where does the role of microaggressions play in all this? Like, how does that come up? And how is this related to the natural bias and these privileges and biases that we have? So if you think about the status of the race conversation before 
George Floyd, right? We were largely discouraged from talking about race, from talking about our politics, from talking about sexual orientation and gender and all of these things, all of these identity-based issues. And race in the United States has been the single most difficult subject for us to navigate and grapple with. And so what's happened is that (laughs) once upon a time, the notion was, you know, keep your home stuff at home and bring your work stuff to work. Well, everyone is trying to work from home while surviving a global pandemic and, oh, the largest civil rights movement in the history of the world. So work and home have become intertwined as they always were. No one who's struggling at home is able to fully compartmentalize what's happening in their life when they go to work. So that was never a realistic expectation. But what's happened now is that we've reached such a startling crescendo that the conversation is absolutely happening everywhere and work is not excluded. So what happens is when you have a nation of people who have been utterly let down by their educational systems, we should have learned about the truth of racism. We should have learned about the truth of the enslavement of African bodies. We should have learned about the way that our government systematically oppressed Black people, indigenous people, people of color for all of these years. These are things that people should know but do not. And so as people wake up to the reality of the impact of racism and the legacy of the delusion of white supremacy, they're stumbling over themselves as they try to have conversations, even when they're the most gracious, kind, and well-intentioned people. What happens with microaggressions is You might be in the process of just trying to communicate with someone or even trying to pay someone a compliment. But if you're culturally, you know, unaware, then you won't realize that in trying to get to know your Asian colleague, when you ask them, oh, where are you from? And they say, I'm from San Francisco. And you say, no, no, no. Where are you really from? Like their Asian parts, right? You know, they they don't realize that that's a whole entire, you know, insult that is diminishing the identity that they tried to give you in their American status. And it is exhibiting your own bias about people's identities. So in the book, we give examples like very common one for African-Americans is like, I'm a public speaker. I'm a professional public speaker. I've been doing this for many, many years. I'm a writer. I'm an author, all these things. So of course I get paid to go attend conferences and to speak on large stages all the time. Well, people think that they're being nice when they say, oh, Dr. Jana, you know, I really loved their presentation. They're so articulate. Of course, that's a nice thing to say, articulate. What a kind word. Well, guess what? articulate to a black person is indicative of the fact that you did not expect that black person to speak the way that they speak. You would never describe a white male CEO, professional public speaker as articulate when he walked off the stage. So our microaggressions end up evidencing our unconscious biases, even when we're trying to be nice and say the right thing. So we have an increased responsibility in the workplace and beyond to increase our cultural fluency so that we're not constantly bumping into each other and causing offense. I mean, as you say this, I'm thinking there's definitely been so many times that I've found myself doing these microaggressions. And it's it's just a question where I'm like, I'm unaware. Yet there's a part of me right now that's thinking, oh my God, how many times is this happening that I'm not aware? And it makes me want to have a kind of default response of maybe I should just talk less or engage less. And that doesn't feel like it's the answer. And so I'd love to ask you the question for someone who might be thinking, wow, if I've been doing this, I don't know I've been doing this. I don't want to shut off. What's the right answer? How do I step into it instead of withdraw from it? 
So I'm going to preface this answer by accepting your invitation to challenge you because I tend to try to move with both honesty, integrity, and grace. And so I will say to you that as a white male, well, first of all, all of us commit microaggressions on a regular basis, including me. I'm a whole diversity practitioner, an expert who's written all these best-selling books on the topic, and I still mess up. That's part of, you know, unconscious bias is part of the human condition, and that's where our stereotyping, and that's where our microaggressions, I prefer to call them subtle acts of exclusion, SAE for short, because microaggression, just like calling somebody a racist, it just puts people on the defensive, and it just sounds so aggressive. The word's right there in the term. So subtle acts of exclusion, or SAE, is a rebranding of that term with a much more values-neutral, just descriptor of the phenomenon. Subtle, it is an act, either verbal or physical, that is exclusive. It's exclusionary. It pushes people to the margins. So as a white man, you have probably committed quite a few of these. And the privilege that you are afforded is that fewer people are going to go out of their way to call you out because you represent, even though you are not you know, the president of the United States, you still represent the primary demographics of the most privileged people on the planet. And so people don't really want to challenge you and get in your way. Now, post-COVID, post-George Floyd's murder, I think that the tenor is changing a little bit and you're more apt to be confronted. But no, I do not advocate for people, you know, obviously listening is a good idea. Sure, listen, talk less, whatever. But I don't want people to avoid interacting across differences for fear of the pain that they'll cause. No, instead, be proactive in educating yourself. I've written four books on the subject. There are countless other authors of color who have written both first-person and academic perspectives on these issues. You can take it upon yourself to learn how to avoid these situations by becoming more informed. And while controversial, there are also a handful of white authors who have written on this subject. And I think that, you know, there are a lot of people saying, don't read the white authors who are writing about these subjects. I have to disagree because I think that there is something deeply sacred about hearing from your own. When you read about a white man who was behaving in racist ways and went on the journey of actually mining his own hard drive and doing the deep introspection and how he turned that corner, that's going to show you something is possible from a perspective you can relate to. So I would say don't only learn from white authors and white theorists. You need to be listening definitely to Black voices, but it's okay to have a diversity, hello, of thoughts, opinions, experiences, and perspectives informing your new direction. So don't avoid talking to people get yourself more culturally fluent and be prepared for the inevitable subtle act of exclusion that will take place and be prepared for some people to call you out and have some grace when they do. It is a gift. So for you to be a privileged white man and not have anyone call you out on this means that you continue to move through the world with ignorance. For you to have a person of color or a, a gender minority, a sexual minority, any kind of underrepresented group to say to you, excuse me, but what you just did or said, it actually caused me harm. Like we need to talk about this. That is a deep and profound and vulnerable gift for which your immediate response should be, oh my gosh, I'm sorry. And thank you for bringing that to my attention. This is not something I was aware of. Like, uh, yes, I would love to talk about this instead of the defensive. Well, that's not what I meant. You're just too sensitive. Yeah, I can totally see examples. I mean, you, across social media right now, I'm seeing that it seems like people are polarizing 
they seem to be in this massive denial camp, especially if they're particularly the white men are either in a complete denial and defensive mode versus stepping into a place, I guess, of humbleness or just listening and realizing that there's so much we don't know because that feedback hasn't been provided. And we've just been walking around with that privilege day in and day out. And so now you've given us a lot of resources that we can move forward with. Obviously, you have so many books that you've published that people can go out and get educated on the topic. And you speak about this particularly in the workplace. And so for all my listeners here, these are the types of books you should be picking up so that you can see yourself grow within the workplace and become a better leader, become a better team member, and become a better friend as you embrace these ideas for diversity and stop having biases and grow because the more you grow, the more you can let the entire culture within the workplace grow. And Tiffany, thank you, first of all, for giving me that feedback and giving me that direction. And I do accept the challenge, as we mentioned before, starting to record this podcast. I was going to ask you, what would be other things that we could mention throughout this recording that are some of the biggest transgressions that happen within the workplace that more people can be aware of and can start improving themselves and stop committing these on a daily basis, perhaps? Yeah, I think that in addition to under-equipping us for you know cultural interaction, it would be one thing if we were just denied access to information, but we were also programmed with really bad information. So many things in our cultures around the world are telling us that certain underrepresented people, indigenous people, black people, people of color, LGBT people, right? People of different religions. We're getting these narratives that these people are bad, that they are less capable, that they aren't leaders, that they aren't good parents, that they'll never amount to anything, that they're going to be poor and stay poor. So much bad messaging has gotten into our psyche and into our souls, and we've internalized that. And the reality is that when you believe these things that are not true, and you can never paint one group of people as a thing, right? And you can't do that. That's a broad brush. It's an overgeneralization. But what happens is we've been programmed in this way. So then when you interact with people, if you have preconceived notions about what you think I am, who you think I am, and what you think I'm capable of, you're actually going to transfer that onto me. And if you're leading me, it is going to influence the way that you see my performance. And we actually have really intense and beautiful studies that indicate that it will actually affect my performance, right? That I will perform better under a set of circumstances where someone believes in my potential than I can perform with someone who believes that I'm just a pile of nothing, that I'm a pile of garbage. So the very first thing is like, we really have to examine ourselves and get real about what we think about different people. And if we are, operating from outdated narratives that probably people who love us very much gave us, right? So like our parents, the people who raise us, our teachers, our clergy, you know, our educators plant ideas, the media, right? Plant ideas into our heads about people. And most of them are just, you know, trying to make sure that we get through the world in a way that's good and happy and whole and safe. But they have bad information too. So if you are an adult, human being on planet earth in 2020 and beyond, then it is time for you to take full accountability for your relationship with and to other people and your relationship with and to the belief systems that you adhere to. Are you programmed? Are you repeating sound bites that are not based in factual information that are based in someone else's agenda or, you know, jacked up constructs? 
So the more that we are able to examine our own perspectives and formulate new and clear opinions that are based in our own reality, the better we'll be able to treat people. So as far as the transgressions that happen in the workplace, we're consistently underestimating people's potential based on these awful narratives that exist within the context of our cultures. And therefore, the first thing that happens is when you're talking about underrepresentation and diversity, the first thing that happens is you don't get sufficient diversity even coming through the door because you never even give people a chance. So if you don't even give people a chance to come in the door, they don't even make it through the interview process because you can't see yourself hiring or working with somebody like that. That's like step one. If you are at a place where you've actually got robust diversity, representative diversity across the board, are you actually nurturing people and helping inspire them and motivate them and bring out the best in them so that they can make it to the next level, so that they can be promoted? Are you doing that or are you just kind of keeping them densely concentrated at the bottom of your organization? Because the vast majority of organizations, particularly in my part of the world, most of their diversity is concentrated at the lowest level of the organization and the powers and the structures and the systems exist to maintain that diversity at the very bottom. So the biggest transgressions include not letting people in of diverse backgrounds, then not supporting them in their growth and their trajectory, not promoting them, and just generally not listening to them or supporting them at all. There are a lot of silenced voices people who actually make it through that door, let's say they even get promoted and they're able to occupy really great positions and have really great titles. Do you know how many underrepresented people are basically told to sit down and shut up? Because really the only thing we want from your diversity is your physical presence so that we can say we've got a black, a female, an LGBT, a disabled, a whatever, insert your demographic, you know, in leadership or at the organization or at this level, but we don't actually want to hear from you, which means that the entire organization loses out on the incredible value that you get when you actually allow diversity to be brought to bear on the solutions you're trying to create with your company. Oh my God. So when you have these executive teams and they're trying to hit, say, that quota so that they can have this diversity it's so messed up. Like, I don't even know what to say when you mentioned the fact that people just get brought there and are told to shut up. How do we change this? Organizations and leaders have to get really honest with themselves. So this is, this is what's remarkable. This moment right now, the biggest civil rights movement in the history of the world. Why is it the biggest civil rights movement in the history of the world? Because white people are feeling the pain. White people have extended their empathy and now their action in service of their black brothers and sisters. And this is the only way that we dismantle white supremacy, that we dismantle the structures of racism. The oppressed cannot do that on our own. That is not something because we literally don't have our hands on the levers of power. Together, hand in hand, white and black and indigenous and all the peoples of color, all the queer people, everybody, right? The entire human family comes together and says, you know what? We will not stand for the exclusion of our own. Race is a social construct. It was made up to justify very bad behavior towards very brown people. We are one human race. We are one human family. Together, we can stand up to every system, to every structure and say, we demand change because what we're experiencing right now in terms of the lack of diversity in institutions, why is it that the higher up you go across most organizations, the more demographically homogeneous it becomes, right? 
Everything was designed to achieve these ends. There are no accidents in our systems, in our structures, in our culture, in our society. No accidents. The system's not broken. It is functioning as it was designed to function. And so it will require every bit as much intention, right? Intention and intentionality to recreate something much more equitable in place of this hot, hot mess that we have inherited. Like no one built these systems and structures that's alive today. They were embedded and they were institutionalized and they were made to be perennially functional. And we have just continued to uphold these systems of oppression over the decades and over the centuries. And we recognize now, a critical mass of us recognize that this has to stop. And so together we can actually make it stop. And we're starting to see the beginnings of that foundation shaking loose. Dr. Jana, this has been such an enlightening conversation and there's a lot to be done, but I'm so happy to see that movement is happening. We're seeing organizations are starting to take this more seriously. I was talking to Dr. Jane Pogue, who's also doing a lot of training in your field and seeing that organizations are making these changes. And so in closing, I wanted to say like, this has been one massive event that's been triggering the worldwide changes. What would be the ideal that we see at the end of this? How do we see the shift happening? And is it realistic to see it within our generation? Because that would be damn nice to see. Absolutely. Absolutely. We can absolutely, like I was not certain that we would or could see it in our generation. But for the first time in the decades that I've been doing this work, I see real hope because we are doing this together, because this is no longer seen as just a BIPOC problem. This is not seen as something that is just for the few. This is seen as, wait a minute, if any part of our human family is not doing well, if any part of our human family is suffering, then we are all suffering. So now we can actually see change because I would never have thought if you had told me five years ago that Fortune 500s and government institutions and all of these organizations would be naming white supremacy and supporting Black Lives Matter, I would have called you a liar. And right now what we are seeing is we are seeing this call to action that is coming not only from the people, it's coming from society at large. So organizations are saying, okay, let's examine our role in upholding systems of oppression. Let's look at our relationship to white supremacy. Let's look like my second book is Erasing Institutional Bias. And that's all about identifying the systemic and the structural bias that is embedded within our institutions, breaking those down, analyzing them and rebuilding something with intention and equity. So yes, it is entirely possible. Will it be easy? No. Will it be a smooth path and will it be without a fight? No, not at all. It will be challenging. You know, we're going to see a lot of people get very, very uncomfortable, but if we're able to center the sacredness of the human spirit, right? At the end of the day, we are human beings who are animated by something greater. And if we're willing to say, you know what? Every single life in this organization is precious. It was George Floyd that served as the catalyst for an awakening at a global scale. It could be your black secretary. It could be your LGBT VP. It could be somebody who's a member of your institutional family who one of these horrible things happens to, and it doesn't have to be that close to home to be important. So now we need to look around our board tables, our Zoom team meetings, and we need to recognize that each one of us is deeply and intrinsically sacred and that we each deserve the opportunity to thrive and be successful 
within the context of the wonderful work that we have signed up to do. Dr. Tiffany Jana, thank you so much again for sharing all of these. For everybody listening, we've really wanted to push on the awareness, the subtle acts of inclusion, understanding these biases, these events where we're at a place of privilege, and how do we start removing all of this so that we can stand within the unity that we try to promote as much as possible around the world, especially here at Mind Valley. We're trying to see how we can bring this more forward. And I think having more of these conversations is exactly how we start moving. And so if you enjoyed this conversation, you want to go deeper into the topic, definitely pick up Dr. Tiffany Jana's latest book, which is about subtle acts of inclusion, how to understand, identify, and stop microaggression. And as you get started there, go through her entire literature. It is all to educate you, to bring your awareness, because one of the biggest things I've taken away from this conversation is that it is our own responsibility to get educated to take ownership of everything that we've been doing and to make it right. And as we do this, we get to see a world where racism, any kind of gender bias and sexual orientation bias, any ethnic bias can start to dissolve. We have better diversity, better representation, better decision-making because you're taking perspectives from so many different viewpoints that it just makes the organization a better place to serve humanity, which is the point of why our organizations exist in the first place. Thank you once again, Tiffany, for coming on the call and sharing these insights and everybody listening. Thanks for tuning in. My name is Jason Campbell, and this is Superhumans at Work, a Mind Valley podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.